0: Hey there podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host Terry Yuan. On our show today, our guest is Nancy S. Erickson, a consultant on issues relating to law and psychology, particularly child custody evaluations and domestic violence. Nancy's career spans over a decade of teaching law at top law schools in the country, eight years of legal services, and decades in private practice representing survivors of domestic violence. Nancy has written books and articles in family law, including domestic violence, child support, custody, marital property, attorneys for children. Custody evaluations and adoption. She is currently researching and writing on custody issues, especially custody evaluations, laws regarding custody in cases where there have been domestic violence, and the use of parental alienation theories against parents who are attempting to protect their children or themselves from abuse. We will be speaking with Nancy today about her work and research on child custody evaluations, due process challenges that evaluations pose and the impact of child custody evaluations on shaping safety outcomes for women and children in court. We will also be speaking with Nancy about a recent case she contributed to that on its surface has positive implications for both same-sex parents and domestic violence survivors. Welcome, Nancy, thank you for being on our show. I'm glad to be here. So let's start with your background. How did you become involved in a full career working with survivors of domestic violence or battered women, as the phrase was coined years ago?
1: Well, when I went to law school, it was for the purpose of becoming an attorney, working in the area of employment discrimination because the situation back then, in 1970, was very bad for women in employment. The Title VII of the Civil Rights Act had just been passed that bans discrimination on the basis of sex. However, it was not really being put into effect. So I went to law school for that purpose after being in the women's movement. Let's see, sixty-nine, seventy. So I went to law school in 1970. But when I graduated from law school, and was studying for the bar exam i volunteered with the women's law center which was then in existence in new york and i expected that a lot of the women who called would be calling about employment discrimination matters almost no one called about employment discrimination most of the calls were about family law so I realized that if I really wanted to help women, I would have to go into the family law field, which I did. I had a brief sojourn at a midtown law firm, which I didn't like. Then I went into teaching and I, my main fields were family law and sex discrimination law. I didn't know anything about domestic violence. I had the usual preconceptions that most people had, which are, why doesn't she just leave? There must be something wrong with her, that kind of stuff. When I went to Ohio to teach, well, when I was teaching in New York City, there was hardly anything going on with regard to domestic violence in terms of teaching family law. But then I went to Ohio to teach in, in 1980, and When I got to the part of the curriculum in family law that had to do with domestic violence, I thought, I really don't know anything about this. I can't really teach this. So I asked my student assistant, Katherine Hyde, if she would get somebody from the domestic violence program in Columbus, Ohio, to come in for that lecture, part of the curriculum. And she did. After that presentation by the domestic violence people, I had a lot of students approach me saying things like, Professor Erickson, I'm a victim of domestic violence. One even said, my husband tried to kill me by putting poison in a cup of coffee. So I got much more interested in this, much more involved with it, and that's where it's gone.
0: So at some point you were working in um, victim services, at legal services in, in yes. New York City, yes. and those were for women who were unable to afford representation. So low income women, yes. is that correct?
1: Low at- income people, but oh. most low income people are are women, or more in low income people are women. Yes. And then over the years you've expanded
0: your client base to work with clients of all economic backgrounds. So I'm just curious, was there any difference in terms of the cases that you were seeing amongst those who were low income versus others? Were there differences in the way the abuse happened in their lives or trends that, you know, you found significant?
1: I don't think so except for the fact that the more educated abusers knew that they should not actually physically harm their partners so that it would leave evidence of their abuse. So you're saying that there's a
0: difference in, I guess, class and how people from different classes, wealthier families potentially um, might enact abuse. So it's less physical, but more in other forms.
1: Well, just in my experience, this this is not a, a study of it.
0: Okay, yeah. and what what kinds of ways did that manifest itself in those relationships, if not physical?
1: a lot of emotional abuse, such as telling her that she was useless, that uh, nobody else would would want her, that she couldn't survive without him, on and on. That's a big one and and of course, if he was the main breadwinner in the family, then it could be. A lot of economic abuse. And what do you mean by that? Well, keeping funds from her so that she would have no way to escape, for example. And if things got really nasty, (laughs) then, for example, there was a woman whose husband left her and their child in another state and came to New York to work. And he... Didn't provide any funds for them, so their electric was turned off. I remember her telling me that they had to take showers in the garage because that was the only place that the water worked. The most evil kinds of things. I mean, I used to think that these guys would sit up late at night trying to figure out ways to harm their partners. And so just to
0: clarify, that case in particular was not a low-income family, you're saying that's no, it was a no, middle, no. upper middle class, no, potentially right. family, right? The, that was a middle class family where, where the mm-hmm. victim had the electricity turned off and wasn't yes. able to, yes, to do base engage in basic self care, right? Okay, so at some point, what made you turn to working in custody evaluations? What was the need that you saw, in the, and how did you identify that as being a problem?
1: Well. I remember one case particularly when I was working for legal services. The woman came in to me not for a custody case, but because she had lost custody to her abuser, their little boy. And then after she lost custody, he went into court to get child support from her. At the time, she was on public assistance, And she had post-traumatic stress disorder and depression very seriously. Her doctor told her it would not be good for her to try to work because of her condition. So he sued her for the the husband, soon to be ex-husband, sued her for child support. And she went into court. In New York, you have a right to an attorney in some kinds of matters but not a child support case where you are simply the respondent uh, from whom child support is being sought. If the petitioner, the, the one seeking the support, is trying to throw you in jail, then you do have a right to counsel. She did not have a right to counsel, and she didn't have money to get counsel, obviously, and this was before she came to legal services. So she went into court on her own and... She told the judge that she was on public assistance and uh, didn't have any funds. She also actually wasn't getting she wasn't getting unemployment either because her employer terminated her for losing time from work on account of going to court. So here she was. And this judge was known to hate women who didn't work outside the home. So this judge said to her, well, when you were working, how much did you make? And she honestly answered. And he said, well, then we're going to base your child support on that amount because you should be working. So she was ordered to pay something like $900, $800 a month child support, and she had no income except for public assistance. So that's why she was coming to legal services to get help for that. So we got her out of that pickle. But then... I got to know more about her situation, and we talked a little about how she had lost custody to her abusive husband, and she said that it was on account of a custody evaluation. And I said, well, do you have a copy of it? Can I read it? Well, unbelievable, (laughs) as it may seem, she did have a copy of it, almost no parent's are given copies of their custody evaluations but she had it so i read it and i could hardly make any sense out of it there was all this stuff that i didn't know anything about like the mmpi says this or that or the other thing and and all kinds of psychobabble but i didn't know it was psychobabble i thought it was for real so I said to myself, well, I I have to go and find out more about custody evaluations, how these are done and uh, so on. So I took some time off from legal services to get a degree in forensic psychology at John Jay. And what I found out was there was nothing wrong with me. It's not that I didn't understand what was going on. It was that custody evaluations are probably worse than useless in domestic violence cases because most custody evaluators don't know anything about domestic violence, and they're not trained in forensic evaluations either. They're just ordinary psychiatrists or psychologists or social workers. Actually, social workers are the best at them but because um, they know more about domestic violence. but They're just ordinary psychologists or psychiatrists, usually, and they really don't learn anything about domestic violence in their PhD programs. Going back
0: a little bit, the custody evaluations, uh, the custody evaluation that you saw from your client, can you walk us through a typical case of what happens in a custody case to have a custody evaluation be ordered? Um, Who pays? How is a forensic evaluator selected? What's the criteria used? And then how, how does it impact the decision in the case?
1: Okay. But first, I'd like to mention what was particularly egregious about this custody evaluation that I was looking at. The client had been so abused by her husband that she ended up suicidal, or at least talking about suicide. And she ended up in, in a psychiatric hospital. When she was talking with one of the psychiatrists or psychologists there, she told him about the domestic violence. She told him that she had feared for her life at his hands, her husband's hands. She told him this is why she felt suicidal. That was in the record, in the hospital record. The custody evaluator had the hospital record. The custody evaluator obviously didn't read it because the custody evaluator never referred to that part of the record. And if he had read it, he had not absorbed it. So he said, well, this this woman is suicidal. She should not have custody of a child. Well, that's crazy because if she had gotten out of that situation and away from him, she would have been able to be a wonderful mother. She had been the primary custodial parent for this child and had done a wonderful job. So that's an example of what's wrong with custody evaluations. Now, taking each of your questions one by one, what was your first one?
0: yeah, if you could walk us through a typical case of when a custody evaluation is ordered, what, what are the parameters that would entice a court to make that determination that it's required? How is it used? What's the process for okay. selecting? What,
1: the first thing is when would a custody evaluation be used? A custody evaluation, and I'm talking about New York right now, mm-hmm. custody evaluation would normally be used if it was clear to the court that this case was not going to settle. So, it, so pretty much any case that's going to go to trial, or that's at that trial level? That looks like it's heading toward trial. Now, that's not all the judges, because, for example, Judge Fields, retired now, Marjorie Fields, specifically would, would not order a custody evaluation in any case, unless there was something to be investigated, By someone who had mental health background otherwise she would just go to trial that's the way most cases are decided you have a trial but the pressures on our court system and probably all court systems in the United States um, especially family courts are such that there is no way to have a trial in every case that needs one. So, like in criminal court where criminal defendants are pressured to take a plea, in family courts the parents are pressured to settle by having a custody evaluation. Then whichever one is disfavored by the custody evaluator of course will want to settle (laughs) Um, or her attorney will want her to settle, saying that if we go to trial you could possibly get a worse situation than the custody evaluator has recommended. so basically it's to
0: force people to settle and and you use the pronoun her um, is that indicative of some of the trends in terms of yes how, what do you mean yes. by that
1: well, I think that custody evaluators and judges are bending over backwards in favor of fathers. Now, people don't believe this. They think that all judges are biased in favor of mothers in custody cases. It's absolutely not true. The treatment of mothers and fathers in cases by judges and custody evaluators is very biased. A mother who has been the primary caretaker parent of the child used to be given some kind of preference, which makes sense. If this person has been the parent who's taken care of the child then this person has the knowledge about the child and the experience in caring for the child that the child needs and and it's supposed to be the best interests of the child not the best interests interests of the parents that are to be given the most weight given all weight but the judges don't do that anymore the judges do not give preference to the person who's been the Primary caretaker. I'm not saying all judges, but many judges, maybe even most judges don't give preference. They want to seem as though they are totally sex neutral in terms of um, their judgments. So number one, if a, if a father comes forth and wants custody, he's viewed as this paragon of virtue because a lot of men don't want custody. And a lot of men, let's say it's a a non-marital situation, a lot of men don't want to have anything to do with the family because they don't want to have to pay child support. And they certainly don't want to take care of a child. But So the ones who do are viewed as extraordinary, wonderful. They're not trying to escape their obligations. They really love children. And so the merest thing that the, they do is blown up out of proportion if if the guy puts a bowl of cereal in front of the childs and pours milk on it in the morning he is viewed as a terrific father whereas the the woman the the mother who's who who's taken care of the child all of the child's life is viewed as on an equal basis so just to clarify your
0: making this generalization for cases that go to trial in general or just cases that you work with with domestic violence allegations all cases all cases okay
1: yeah and
0: then so getting back to my question in terms of the process for the forensic or the custody evaluator um what happens um, in terms of distribution of who's paying, you know, and, the, and who determines the scope of the evaluation, are those things that the court decides? Do the litigants
1: have some say in that? Well, first of all, how do you choose one? Uh huh. In the first and second departments in New York State, there's a list of people who are approved to do custody evaluations. Approved doesn't mean much; it just means that they have a license, that they have um, insurance, that they are either a psychiatrist, psychologist, or social worker, that they've applied, or in many, many, many cases, they're grandparented in because they did custody evaluations for years, and so they're allowed to continue to do them. There's no real scrutiny of their training and backgrounds. They just have to be any old psychologist or psychologist, psychiatrist or social worker. They don't have to have had any particular background in domestic violence, in, uh, let's say, uh, alcohol and drug abuse, which is also a common thing in, as custody issues go. They they don't have to know anything in particular about children. If a litigant is alleging domestic violence of
0: some sort in the relationship, does that person have the right to require that the custody evaluator have those credentials? So basically someone can come in without those credentials and make an evaluation.
1: Yes. Okay. And And there are very, very, very few custody evaluators who know anything much about domestic violence. So how much weight is given to those reports then by the judge? If that person well, first doesn't- of all, how much weight is given by the parents, the parents know that this person is likely to testify. They know what the outcome of their case may be, because quite often the judge will simply accept the recommendation of the custody evaluator. So the one who is at a disadvantage, her or his attorney will want to settle this and will warn the client, you're, not gonna get, you're likely not going to get anything better than what this custody evaluator has recommended, so you should settle. So you get a lot of people settling for what they really don't think is in the child's best interests. For example, unsupervised visitation to an abuser as long as they get custody something like that, um, and they feel like they have no choice, they better settle.
0: And you said earlier in the example of the client you had at Legal Services who provided the custody evaluation for you to review that there were tests in there um, that weren't relevant. And how, how so?
1: Well, there is no test for parenting ability. The tests that are used in custody evaluations are usually just run-of-the-mill psychological tests, such as the most common one is the MMPI. Well, the MMPI is useful for someone who is treating a patient, because the MMPI can give some hints as to what the person's issues are. It will not tell you what that person's issues are necessarily, but it'll give you some hints, and you you work with that, and you work with the patient over a long period of time, and uh, hopefully that leads to healing whatever problems the, the person has. It's not meant, and it specifically says, it's not meant to be a forensic instrument. Um, now, they, they used to use other ones, that are even worse, like the Rorschach inkblot test, they really only, as I said, give hints. They don't tell you really what the person's issues really are, and there's no way to to determine through an MMPI or any of the other instruments unless the person is, like, psychotic. I see. So... Getting back to
0: the process of the custody evaluations, you also mentioned that it was unusual for your client to be able to see or have a copy of her own report. What's the typical scenario in which a custody evaluation is distributed? What are the rights of a litigant?
1: Well, so far in New York City, what usually happens is the Judge will order that each of the attorneys, including the attorney for the child, will get a copy of the evaluation. The attorney then is permitted to allow the client to read it, but it has to be under supervision so that the client does not take pictures of it with the with the cell phone or something like that. The client is not allowed to the parent is not allowed to have a copy of it. That is just New York City. Around the state things are in total chaos. For example, I had a case in Suffolk County where the judge did not allow the attorneys to have copies. And this is, you know, throughout the state it's it's a judge by judge thing. So Judge Maine require the attorney, as I was required in Suffolk County, to go into the court, in other words, to travel from Brooklyn to Suffolk County, to sit down with a 110-page report and to try to absorb that and to try to then be able to discuss it with my client, which was clearly impossible.
0: So what happens in pro se cases when a litigant is representing himself or herself?
1: That's the worst. Well, let me let me go back a second. There are some parts of the state where the client is not a, allowed to read the the evaluation including Suffolk and and some other places. In that case, it is really really difficult because the client may if unrepresented may be told, "Okay, we'll make an exception, you can read it." But you have to go into court to read it, and you will not get a copy of it. You may or may not get a co- get an actual physical copy of it when you are in court for a trial. Let me see if I'm representing this right. In
0: criminal trials, you have a right to access evidence that's being used to inform the ultimate decision of your case. But... You're saying that in family court, with respect to custody evaluations, the differing levels of access exist both in New York City and across the state. So how does that impact due process rights for the litigants?
1: I think it's a total violation of due process. And there's a bill in the legislature now uh, introduced by Weinstein and others that would correct this, that would allow each, or would require that the parents be given copies. So you're referring uh, the to, attorneys, the attorneys and the parents be given copies. So you're referring
0: to New York State Assemblywoman Helen Weinstein, Helene spo- Helene yes. Weinstein who sponsored Assembly Bill 1533. What's the status of that bill now?
1: I really don't know. It's been criticized by some judges, some lawyers, some psychologists. But it has been favorably reported on by people who really know the area of custody evaluation, such as Tim Tippins. So I don't know where it is now, frankly. Well, if the bill were to be passed, what kind of
0: impact do you anticipate it having on these cases? Do you you think it's going to be significant or is it just really something that is paying lip service to a process that in itself seems very flawed?
1: Well, the process is extremely flawed, and I don't think custody evaluations are generally useful uh, at all. I think if you, if you have a case in which, as Judge Field used to handle them, if you, have, if you have a case in which there's a serious allegation of some real issue, like domestic violence, like alcohol or drug abuse mental illness, then they may be useful. But in the ordinary run-of-the-mill case, I don't think that they are really useful to the court except to get rid of cases.
0: I see. So in the absence of a bill, what kind of recourse does a litigant have to hold the forensic evaluator accountable or to hold the court accountable for using or introducing a piece of evidence that may have been
1: flawed? Not much. Almost nothing if the person is low income. If the parent is high income enough, the parent can hire somebody to do a review of the custody evaluation and to give that critique to the attorney. And the, the high income parent could even hire a second individual to testify, but for a low-income person, there are almost no alternatives. Now, I have as a custody evaluator critiquer, (laughs) I should say, I have done some critiques of custody evaluations for low-income people because their attorneys know that they have money available. It's not that much money but they have money available um, that they can get from the court for critiques of the custody evaluations. But most attorneys don't know that they have that availability, and they really don't have the time and energy to get involved in that kind of thing. So
0: once a decision has been handed down by the court, if a litigant is unhappy with that, besides the appeal process the legal process— There's also accountability to professional organizations. So for example, in California, they passed a bill in 2014 authorizing its Department of Consumer Affairs, which regulates licensed psychologists, full access to custody evaluations when they're authors of the subjects of complaints. In New York State, the Office of Professions, the state office responsible for investigating the work of evaluators, is unable to explore complaints of misconduct because their records are sealed. That was something that was explored in an article you were interviewed for by ProPublica. Yes. Can you just share with our listeners the background for that? What what does it mean, you know, to make a complaint to the Office of Professions? And is their response
1: valid? And what can we do? Wow, that's a big question. Okay. If a parent makes a complaint to the... New York State Department of Education Office of Professional Discipline, OPD, about a psychologist. Now I'm just talking about psychologists because psychiatrists are MDs and they're covered by a different um, office. The Office of Professional Discipline will reply, sorry, we cannot investigate this because we don't have access to the custody evaluation. that custody evaluation is under the control of the court. And all we can do is contact the court and ask the court for a copy of the custody evaluation and the testimony of the evaluator and anything else that's related to the custody evaluation. And they won't give it to us. So our hands are tied. Now, of course, that means that there are custody evaluators psychologists who did this work for years and decades and were never called to task. Now, one or two of them are no longer on the list of approved custody evaluators. And we have never been able to find out whether they took themselves off the list because of the complaints made against them or because they were taken off the list. But It wouldn't have been the complaints to OPD that would have gotten them off the list. It might have been the complaints made to the appellate division against them, which is a different route of making a complaint. But um, that's where we have a problem. The OPD says, sorry, we can't investigate because we don't have the uh, materials that we need. And so far... Uh, we've gotten nowhere with trying to persuade them that this is their job. They've got to do it. Now, there is some legislation pending that has not been introduced yet, which I really can't discuss, but it would solve this problem. What happens
0: if you were to submit the copy of the evaluation, if you happen to have it as a litigant or as an attorney from your attorney, and you had you know, proof from the transcripts, which you can order from the court. If you were to submit those materials, would OPD consider reviewing it?
1: So far, we have not gotten any success with that.
0: So you're saying even with evidence, they're refusing to... Right.
1: If you only have the custody evaluation, we haven't seen success in that. Now, people can't afford to get transcripts. I don't know if the ordinary public knows how much it costs to get a transcript. That's another of my pet peeves it's over a dollar per page. And these could go on for hundreds of pages. What they have in New Jersey, for example, is if you're having a hearing, it's recorded, and for about 10 or $15, you can buy that recording. Now, that's not official, because that's not a transcript. But at least you can get a clue as to what might be Something that you need to have transcribed. Now, I, I also want to mention how important, you know, getting back to the issue of due process, how important it is for the parent to have a copy. The reason is that the parent and the attorney have to read the custody evaluation many, 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 many times and take notes and take notice of areas where they might need to get witnesses to testify against the custody evaluator, for example. And a a good example of this was with a a client that I had in legal services who, before she came to us, her ex-husband was trying to get custody of their son, a different one from the one I spoke about before. The parents had negotiated for a long period of time and had agreed that the mother would get custody. But about a year later, the father turned around and he said that he wanted to get custody. So he filed for a change of custody. And a custody evaluator was appointed and said in her report that the pediatrician had stated something bad about the mother. Well, this mother was very dedicated and persistent. She went and sat, she had no attorney for this. She went and sat in the court hours and hours and hours and read the custody evaluation, which most people can't do. They can't take off from work for days to go and sit in court when the court has somebody to watch them. And, and that's not all the time. So she went in and she read it and she read this part about the custody evaluator said that the pediatrician said, which is already hearsay, right? Something bad about her. And so she went to talk with the pediatrician because she was on very good terms with the pediatrician. She knew the pediatrician never would have said any such thing about her. And so she discussed this with the pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, Of course I didn't say that. That's ridiculous. Now the mother might never have known that if she had not been able to read the evaluation and if she had not been able to read it very carefully and take notes as to who said what. So with the current situation where we have, for example, judges who say, well, the attorney can have a copy or the attorney can read it, but can't show it to the parent, it's up to the Attorney, then, to figure out what is important. The attorney can't figure out what's important. The attorney hasn't lived the client's life. The client is the only one, the only one who knows whether what's in that evaluation is correct or not.
0: And just, you know, in terms of the topic of custody evaluations as a tool for evaluating quote unquote mental health in the parents, what's the background for that? Why is there a process to even evaluate mental health? in these domestic violence cases that you're working with? Is it related to a history of thinking that domestic violence is a function of mental health issues? I'm not
1: Well, yes. In a very sick way, it is related. In the old days, basically everybody thought that if a woman was in a domestic violence situation because she was uh, mentally ill, that she must have some mental illness that causes her to like being abused or... Um, something was wrong with her. Then it became apparent that that's not the case, that any person can be abused. It's a matter of abusers. (laughs) Then the theory was, well, maybe the abuser has to be mentally ill. The answer is no. We've done, I don't know how many studies of abusers. And most of them do not have any kind of mental illness. And the ones who do have some kind of mental illness, it may or may not be any way related to the abuse. Basically, abuse is a... Abuse behavior. It's not a symptom of mental illness. There is, there is no way that you can tell by a custody evaluation that person will, is abusive. So
0: basically what I'm hearing you say is that really there's no place for mental health evaluations in the form of custody evaluations in custody courts. Is that right?
1: Yes, except perhaps, perhaps in very limited circumstances like, doc, like uh, Judge Fields was suggesting. But then you'd have to have somebody super trained in the particular area. If dad says that mom is an alcoholic, abuses drugs, whatever, then the person doing the evaluation would have to be very, very proficient in that area. If mom says that dad is a psychopath, then you might have to do a have somebody who really knows about psychopaths and can use the tests such as the PCLR that do come close to predicting whether this person is a psychopath or not. But an ordinary psychologist or psychiatrist wouldn't know any of this.
0: I see. Okay, so I want to turn now to a case that you worked on, an amicus brief in conjunction with Sanctuary for Families, the Brooke S.B. versus Elizabeth C.C. case. On the surface, the case appeared to be relevant to only same-sex parents and to non-biological and non-adoptive parent custody cases. But can you walk us through briefly the background of the case and how its decision impacted domestic violence victims and survivors?
1: Yes, this is very interesting. This case started um, long before New York and other states allowed same-sex marriage, but obviously, before that time, lots of same-sex partners had been living together. They'd been having children together. They'd been entering into ceremonies together to show that their love for each other, but they weren't allowed to get married. So that was the background of, of this case. Uh, Brooke and Elizabeth lived together. They decided to have children. They decided that Elizabeth would be the one who would have the child through artificial insemination, but they both would raise it for a few years, and then they split up. And for a while, I think it was two years or so, they shared custody of the child. Then Elizabeth decided that she didn't want Brooke to have any contact with the child anymore. So Brooke sued for custody or visitation. And the court said, well, sorry, but you're not a parent. So you don't even have standing to come into court and ask for custody or visitation. It was appealed to the appellate division. And the appellate division said, you're not a parent. It was appealed again to the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York State. And this was the third time that the Court of Appeals had been presented with the basically the exact same uh, issue. In the previous two cases, the Court of Appeals had said, sorry, you're not a parent. In this case, the court was clearly presented with evidence that Brooke had acted in all ways like a parent and that there had been a clear promise between the two of them, even though they were not married, that they would have this child together, raise the child together. Times had changed. By the time this came up to the Court of Appeals, the United States Supreme Court had decided that states could not prohibit same-sex marriages. And even before that, the state of New York had passed same-sex marriage laws. And so the whole groundwork had changed. The question was then, how far was the Court of Appeals going to go? Was it going to say, well, in this particular case, we're going to hold that the non-biological, non-adoptive mother is a parent and can have standing? Or are they going to go farther and make a much broader decision? A lot of advocates were advocating for a much broader definition, which we'll call functional parent, which would have allowed anyone who acted as a parent toward the child to seek parental status. That was viewed by many domestic violence programs and, and individuals as being very dangerous for battered mothers. And what we advocated for, and when I say we, as I'm talking about Sanctuary and many other organizations that joined with the Sanctuary in a brief, we argued that the decision of the Court of Appeals should be narrow and should be geared toward the particular facts of this particular case, which were very, it's a very common set of facts lesbian couple has a child and they have agreed beforehand, before there's even the conception of the child, to raise the child together. So we argued that if you had this situation where there was a preconception agreement between the the two parents to have the child and raise the child, then that would be a situation where the non-biological, non-adoptive parent would have standing as a parent. The reason why this was important for domestic violence survivors was that if the court went farther and adopted the theory of functional parent, then, for example, you could have a single mother with a child or or more who, when the child is two years old or whatever, enters into a relationship with another person, usually a male. They live together and the child may view the new person as a father figure. And if that person turns out to be abusive and the the mother then breaks up with that person, that person under the functional parent theory could get the right to sue for custody or visitation. That would be extremely dangerous. It's bad enough when the battered mother has to respond to a custody case because she was married to the abuser and so this is his child. Or she was not married to him, but this is his biological child. Then she has no choice. She has to go through this horrendous battle with him over custody. To add to that more abusers who can seek to get custody or visitation would be horrendous for battered women. They would certainly be leery of getting involved with anybody because you can never know who might be abusive. So, for example, in one of the two previous cases that made their way to the Court of Appeals, in one of those cases, the organization Single Mothers by Choice put in an amicus brief, and they said, for these same reasons, that uh, the functional parent theory should not be used. In The Brooke SB case, the sanctuary brief, was written with that argument that, yes, this particular mother, Brooke, Brooke SB, should be viewed as a parent and should have the right to sue for custody or visitation, because before the child was even conceived, the two people entered into an agreement as to the conception of the child, as to the raising of the child, just as though they were married. And fortunately, our view won over in the Court of Appeals. So to
0: summarize what you're saying, if a person can prove that there's a preconception agreement where the partners would raise the child together in New York State, then they have standing um, even if they're a non biological or non adoptive parent. Is that correct?
1: Right. What about step parents? Step parents are, by definition, parents who came in later. They are not parents who, before the child was born, decided to conceive a child with with somebody else. And in New York as of the present time at least step parents do not have standing to seek custody or visitation except in very extraordinary circumstances.
0: Okay. So do you consider this case to be a victory for battered mothers or is this just a temporary win?
1: Well, it's a temporary victory. I have hopes that it will be clear to the courts that we don't need functional parenthood theory in New York, we don't need it, because most of the people who would be affected are people who would fall under the preconception agreement decision in Brooke S.B. v. Elizabeth. So they wouldn't need to look for any kind of uh, functional parent theory. So as we turn to the end of our conversation,
0: uh, in the spirit of Inside the Actors Studio, James Lipton's questionnaire, I've created an engendered questionnaire for all of our guests. Mm -hmm. So the first question is, what is at stake in this struggle to end gender based violence and oppression?
1: What is at stake is our entire human existence. We know that the world is becoming overpopulated. We know that very serious changes have to be made in the world in order to simply survive because of environmental changes that we are bringing about. And we know that women who are educated and will have fewer children, they'll raise them to be more educated, to be healthier so just from the point of view of the existence of our civilization having nothing to do with the rights of the women involved we have to stop sex-based it's really sex-based discrimination against women and sex-based violence what gives you hope Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I, I wish I could have a list of ten things that give me hope. Um, I, I think that, in a really weird way, the really horrible things that are going on now are making some people at least wake up to reality. so that's that's a hope that I have. And also, I think younger women now, a huge percentage of them are willing to stand up and fight for their rights, which was not true in the past. Okay, and our last question,
0: if you can address this to our listeners, you don't have to answer all all four parts, but you are welcome to. What can we do more of, less of,
1: start? or stop? Well, I think one of the most serious problems is the way we allocate governmental funds. As I said before, we don't have governmental funds that are sufficient for courts. And judges are pressured, and attorneys are pressured, everyone's pressured to just do the least. The least does not help children or abused mothers right now for example in king's county i believe that to get a case on the trial calendar you're talking about 2019 or 20 for a custody case that's absurd and What happens, as I mentioned, is that women are pressured into settlements that are not good for children and not good for the mothers. So we have to invest, and this is a big problem in times like this, where the pressure is toward less tax being collected and less money being given to all governmental functions. All right.
0: Well, thank you, Nancy. It's been great talking with you and hopefully you'll come back. Thank you. It's been good talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at K-A-N-D-U-I-T dot com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.